Dear Father, we are so committed, Father, in this place to you and to your word because we know, Father, that it is the bread of life. And when you turn to your servant Peter and you said to him that if he loved you, he would feed your sheep, Father, we know that 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 must tell us something of your heart for your people. That you care most that they would know you by your word, that they would be taught and brought up in it. And Father, if that was your desire, that your people would know you in that way, then we must trust as well, Father, that you understood and knew that that was the best thing for them, that that would give them what they needed most, that it was everything they needed for life and godliness. And so many, Father, have forgotten that. We don't want to forget that, Father. We want to follow you in all respects, including in your commandment, that we would know and study and follow your word. And so, Father, we thank you for the privilege that it is to to be entrusted with it and to hear it and to share it. And, Father, we do ask that you would give us a heart that wants to share it with others as well, that as we reflect on it during the week that comes, we wouldn't simply reflect internally, we would reflect externally. We would show it and we would speak about it. And, Lord, I pray that as well as as we learn things in it and as we share that with others, that you would take what we're learning and what we're doing with it and you would use it to magnify your body here at this church, not just for our sake or for our own desires, Father, but for the sake of your glory in this city and for your word. Give us the privilege that it would be, Father, to serve even more with it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back to chapter 11. We're studying why Israel rejected her Messiah in the day that Jesus came for them. And as we're doing this, though, we're also taking time, as you remember, to consider why people today are still doing the same thing. That is, why some reject what seems so obvious to the rest of us, and including some Christians in a sense. That is, how Christians sometimes can get caught up in thinking as the world does in these matters and fall away from what they do believe in. Last week, we saw Jesus telling the crowd that they wouldn't receive him for the very same reasons they didn't receive John the Baptist earlier, which is that they were invested in this religious game, as I described it, one that was invented by the rabbis of Israel in that day and in centuries prior. I called that religious game Pharisaic Judaism uh, to distinguish it from what God gave Moses, which is, if you will, biblical Judaism, biblical following of the law. But in place of that, over centuries, Israel had come to follow something very different, something that today is what you see in Israel. So if you didn't know better, you might think that is what Judaism is. But what you're seeing today is the result of many centuries, millennia even, of changes and additions and manipulations of the rabbis. And that system dictated religious life for Israel then, as it does now among those who are observant anyway. And in the process, what it created was a culture, a culture that was committed to self-righteousness and presumptuousness. Self-righteousness and presumptuousness. That system reinforced in the minds of Jews the thinking that they have to depend on their own works under the law, to please God. And they believed themselves to be a privileged class of humanity, chosen by God, as we know they were, but as a result, destined for heaven automatically. So they were deeply invested in this religious way of life, which led them to be self-righteous. And they had no interest in any other system. They weren't willing to abandon what they had, had grown comfortable with because they were presumptuously thinking that they already had everything they needed, merely because they were Jewish. Simply put, they had hard hearts. They had hard hearts. And that's what we learned last week. We learned that one of the two main reasons Jesus is rejected by Israel is because the people 
the nation, if you will, they had hard hearts. Now look, a hard heart, when you hear that term, that does not necessarily require that the person be mean or stubborn or even unreligious. And I think sometimes that's what that word tends to mean to us. When we hear a hard heart, we think of those types of people. That's not biblically what the word means or the term. Spiritually speaking, a hard heart is simply one that is closed to any suggestion that they don't know the truth about God. They're closed to any suggestion that they don't have the truth already. An atheist can have a hard heart, yes. But so can an unsaved Baptist, if you know what I mean. Or an unsaved Catholic or an unsaved Methodist. Uh, That is to say, people who identify with a system of religion but have never come to know Christ as Savior and been born again, and those people are out there, I'm proof of that. I sat in a Catholic church for 20-something years and I wasn't saved. Not that Catholicism would save you necessarily, but the point is I looked to be religious, but I didn't know God, not truly. And that's a hard heart if when it's met with the truth, it rejects it out of hand because it says to itself, I already have what I need. So you can find a Mormon or a Muslim or a pagan who has an open heart when they encounter it, and you can find a very religious people who are nominally Christian, not truly so, who are closed and hard-hearted and not interested in knowing something. You've probably met people who fall into each of those categories, right? So the issue is not where you start in this journey. The issue is whether you're receptive to changing the path. That's the issue. And what the people of Israel needed to know was that what they had was wrong, what they needed was what Jesus was offering, and that would have required an open heart. It would have required that they were ready to listen, eager to change their opinion, and Jesus said, you're not that group. In fact, that's why Jesus and John the Baptist came preaching, repent and believe. Repent and believe. They had to first turn away from Pharisaic Judaism. They had to turn away from self-righteousness before they could receive the kingdom that Jesus said was at hand. They had to reject the authority of the religious leaders before they could embrace the Messiah's reign. But the people took a look at Jesus, and if you've ever imagined him or seen pictures of him in which he is portrayed as a blonde-haired, blue-eyed British actor, uh, there's a a time coming later in this gospel when I'm actually going to use visuals because there's a point later when the issue of his appearance is actually of value to our study. And I'm going to show you pictures... Both classically, what people say Jesus looked like, right, whenever you see the paintings, and then what he probably did, not in literal terms what he did, but, you know, in terms of what a first century Palestinian Jew would have looked like. All right? I'll show you that picture. But the point is, of course, the Bible says he was an unimpressive man. I like to tell people, whatever you're imagining right now, he's a lot shorter than you think he is. (laughs) Isn't that how we always do it? Right? He's, He's a short, unimpressive Jewish man with brown skin, and, oh, by the way, do you always imagine with long hair? (laughs) No. The only reason you have long hair is if you have a Nazarite vow. Men cut their hair, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. So he would have short hair, and he would have looked like your everyday average, you know, manual laborer in first century Middle Eastern terms. All right? They looked at that guy, Israel did, and they sized him up, And they closed their hearts to this guy because their pride and their devotion to this pomp and circumstance of first century Pharisaic Judaism, it blinded them to the claims of this guy. I I like to do that in my own mind sometimes. I think to myself, all right, imagine that kind of an unattractive man standing before you, unimpressive, and, and then hear the words that Jesus said coming out of his mouth, and before he's done any miracles, what would you think? I mean, you wouldn't believe it. You'd believe him as far as you could throw him. 
Why would you believe him? Right? In other words, just on its face, it looks completely ridiculous. But as he proved himself in miracles, as he said what he said and impressed them with his truth, that should have turned them, that should have opened their hearts. In a sense, you could say this, Israel knew too much about God and too little about themselves, at least as far as God saw them, in order for them to receive the truth. Their heads were filled with religious notions that were invented by rabbis, which distorted their understanding and their expectations for what a Messiah would look like and what he was going to do. And so in that sense, you could say they knew too much, too much of the wrong things to accept God. And then you have Pharisaic Judaism teaching them that they are supposed to rely on this system that the rabbis invented in order to become righteous and deserving of the kingdom. So in that sense, they thought themselves too worthy. They thought themselves too good to need what Jesus was offering. And in that sense, they knew too little about themselves because certainly they were sinners in need of a Savior. That's the situation. So back in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus has now exposed that from last week. And now what he does is move to basically pronouncing judgment on this generation of Israel. And it's not pretty. Verse 20, Matthew writes, Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Not pretty. So he denounces the people. And he names three cities in the Galilee. If you see the cover of your program this evening, it's, it's an old map. It's not very clear. It's not meant to be. It's more decorative. But you can see there in that little section that's highlighted the three cities. They sit very close to each other along the northern edge of this uh, the lake, it's called the Sea of Galilee, but it's a freshwater lake. They're all along the Jewish side of the lake. The lake, as you remember, had a Jewish side and a Gentile side in that day. So Capernaum, you see it on the northwestern shore of the lake. And that was Jesus' adopted hometown during the time of his earthly ministry. And then from there, it's a very short walk up the hill to Chorazim. And then another little short walk across the top of the lake over to Bethesda. And Bethesda represented the, the far eastern edge of the uh, side of the lake that was Jewish at the time. So here's what Jesus just did, in effect, is he denounces the entire Jewish community, which is largely populated around the Sea of Galilee, and he uses those three cities simply as poster children. They're just the examples, but they're intended to capture the whole. Obviously, they're not the only three cities that are in view here. And Jesus denounces them. Now, the word for denounce there, Greek, the word for, that's used in Greek for denounce here, you could translate it also reviled. It's a very strong word in Greek. So what I'm saying is Jesus is not holding back here. He's not pulling any punches. He's speaking in the strongest possible terms to these people. He's condemning them, the Galileans, for not repenting, having seen so many great miracles done in their presence that Jesus performed. Now I want you to notice here, the issue is repentance again. You notice how he says that? You didn't repent. The issue is repentance. Their rejection of Christ as Messiah was just a symptom it was the symptom of a larger problem, and that larger problem was a hard heart that wouldn't repent. That was the issue. Remember what I told you last week about repenting. 
I use that little convention, convention that I've, I like. It's small r, big r. I, basically, it's my way of helping us distinguish between two different uses of the word repentance in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. You have repentance, as I say, with a capital R. That is something very specific. That's what Jesus is talking about here when he says repent and believe or repent and receive the kingdom. He's not directing the people just to feel sorry for some sin that they've committed or some set of sins or, for that matter, their whole life of sin. That's not the issue per se. That's repentance with a small r, as I call it. That's the sanctifying walk of regret leading to changed life that Christ does in our hearts after we come to know him. What Jesus is asking for is something that predates that, that is the predecessor, the prerequisite, if you will. Before you can do little r, you have to do big r. And big r, that kind of repentance, is a change of heart. It's a change of perspective. It is a turn from living in disobedience to God to living in obedience through faith. That's what r is in that sense, big r. That kind of repentance starts... In a very specific way, it starts with recognizing we are sinners in trouble with God, who is our judge. For many of us, repentance leads to faith. That's the intent. This kind of repentance always leads to faith, I should say. And in many of us, it begins as a feeling. It kind of depends on how you came to faith and how old you were. But as an adult, for example, when you reach that moment of capital R repentance, it starts often as a feeling in your stomach that you start to realize you've been found out. Maybe something somebody has said in a sermon or something you've read, but you get to that moment where it sort of dawns on you that God knows you better than you thought he did, and he's concerned in your life personally. There is something about you that is troubling to God, and you're aware that God knows of your sin. You cannot hide from him anymore. I like to compare it to that feeling you get. You know, you don't have to raise your hand if you agree with this, because I know you wouldn't want to. That feeling you get when you look in the rearview mirror and you see the police lights and you know you were speeding. Never happened to anybody in here, I know. But you know that feeling, right? Where you know, uh, it's, it's kind of that panic that says, I'm in trouble and there's no escape. Unless you can talk yourself out of it, right? That's the, the hope. But seriously, it's realizing God will hold you accountable. That there's a day of judgment coming, you're not ready for it, you're in trouble. Now, how you say it to yourself may depend on how someone's explaining it to you. But somewhere deep inside, repentance means abandoning any pretense that God accepts you the way you are. You know that line that we like to tell people, God loves you just the way you are? Nonsense. He wouldn't have put his son on the cross if he liked you the way you were. He wouldn't have needed to put his son on the cross if he liked us the way we were, right? Now, repentance is ceasing to think that you're going to survive the judgment by doing good works or living some, quote, good life, which is always a nonsense thing to begin with. It's this idea that you've come face to face with the reality of how much you deserve God's judgment apart from grace. That's capital R. Now, it does not manifest in us in exactly the same way, one person to the next. But it always has the same effect in the end. Our concerns over our sin will lead us to seek for a solution, to be reconciled with God. And as soon as that repentance moment takes hold in our heart, God is right there to explain the second half of the story. Because God doesn't bring you the repentance unto salvation without also bringing you the means to that salvation. That's his whole point. And then the moment you get the two together and you understand there is a solution for my sin, I don't have to do this on my own. What will come from that is a a turn from the feelings of fear and sorrow to feelings of relief and joy. Now, some of us, that whole moment happens so fast from the moment we hear the gospel in its beginnings 
to the repentance, to the faith and the joy. That Maybe it's not a, a long time in the middle there where you're feeling that feeling I just described. But there are others, and you will find them if you don't know them already. If, if you spend enough time in the church, you will encounter people who will tell you they had a repentance moment, and weeks later they got the story. And they sat there in that repentance moment for a while. And I don't know why God does that with some people in that way. But it's always an interesting thing when you talk to them about just how much their heart was ready for the solution when they heard it. That journey depends on an open heart. That journey is a heart willing to receive God's provision in Christ. It's why Christ expressed the gospel in his day as repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He was opening hearts so that he could fill them with himself. And he says to Israel, you can have your kingdom, but you have to receive me as your Messiah. But if you were to receive me as your Messiah, you must recognize your need for a savior, someone to take away your sin. And therefore, you must acknowledge you are a sinner in the presence of God. Or simply put, repent and believe. Now, if Jesus had made that declaration by itself, if he had just walked into the room looking as I described him earlier, and he had just said that and done nothing more, I think we could forgive the Galileans for dismissing his his claims. Just because it would have been a bridge too far for most people to accept that he actually had the solution he was offering. Because it wasn't visible, right? Words are cheap. Any crackpot could have shown up, walked around, made that kind of an offer. And it would have been meaningless. And in fact, over the centuries, there were many imposters who had come to Israel making exactly that kind of a claim, probably looking a lot like Jesus. They might have tried to stand a little taller, but the whole point is they were trying to put one over on Israel, and people were ready for that. But here's the difference, and we just read it in the text. Matthew says in verse 20, Most of the miracles Jesus did, he did in these three cities. Now, the gospel records miracles in Bethsaida and in Capernaum, but none in Chorazim, as far as we know. But apparently, he did a lot in Chorazim also. It just didn't get recorded. So, when Jesus came with that message, repent and believe, he was speaking with power. He came with demonstrations of God's authority, which, you know, obviously, when you can do something that only God can do, you're proving your claim to speak for God. It's just that simple. He didn't demand that Israel take his words without proof or evidence. The Lord condescended to prove his claims to Israel. Now, that's a remarkable demonstration of God's grace to his people. I don't think we can fully grasp how remarkable that is. The Bible says that when we come to the Father through our faith in Jesus Christ, it's by his word, by the word of God. That's what the Bible says. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Nevertheless, Israel was such beloved by the Father that he was willing to go that extra mile and that he backed his son's claims with supernatural displays. And add to that the fact that Israel wasn't walking into this blindly. They had the prophets. They had the word of God. They had what they had already been given, which told them what to look for, which is what Jesus was doing. So they had been prepped, if you will, for what was coming. So between the prophecies of God's word and the miracles that Jesus performed, these people had everything you could possibly have asked for if your goal was to find the right Messiah. No one could claim Jesus didn't make the truth clear. That is an exceptional dispensation of grace, which made their rejection of Christ all the more shameful. Do you know that in the history of this age, the Lord is only going to offer four generations of humanity, the privilege of receiving visible signs and wonders on a regular basis. Only four generations of humanity will ever see this in this age. Of those four, you have the Exodus generation, 
You have the generation that lived between Elijah and Elisha's ministry. You have those of Jesus' first coming, which is the group we're talking about now. That extends into the early age of the church, that, that generation of, of time. And you'll have one more. One more is all that God appoints. It's the generation that will live shortly before and into Christ's second coming. When you see the, the things of tribulation and the second coming of Christ. That's it. Of all the history that's led to that moment, four generations of humanity get that kind of special dispensation of God's grace. It's dispensation of grace to see signs and wonders backing up what you already have in the word of God. But apart from those four periods of history, everyone else will come to know God by faith, in faith alone, I should add, in the word of God alone, apart from signs and wonders. I bet if I took a poll in here, how many of you who came to faith did so in conjunction with a miraculous sign, something on the level of a parting of the Red Sea or Jesus walking on the water. I mean, I assure you, if a hand went up in here, you're lying. (laughs) And the point would be made, right? Yet here we are. Here we are in faith, saved by the grace of God. No one had to part the Red Sea to bring us there. But he did for generations past, and in particular this one. Now, why are those things rare? Maybe that's a good question to answer. Why is it rare that God is doing this? And it's because it's so easily counterfeited and because it's easily manipulated. If the Lord was dependent on such things routinely, then what we would find ourselves in is a constant state of confusion at the hands of the enemy. Remember the story of Moses when he goes to visit Pharaoh? He throws his staff down, it turns into a snake. What did the sorcerers do? The same thing. You ever wonder why that happened? Because Satan has power to do similar things in his own realm as God appoints. If that's the way we found truth, God help us. What would you know is true anymore if it was based on where you saw the most power displayed? Moreover, you then find the Lord in this game competing with the enemy at every turn for our attention. The enemy turns a stick into a snake. Okay, well, that's, that's passe. We've seen that before. All right, well, then maybe I'll grow a tree in an instant. Okay, well, next there'll be an elephant will show up in the room. You, you get into this one-upsmanship thing where no one could ever be pleased for anything. It, it gets ridiculous, obviously. Only in exceptional circumstances, and when it suits the Lord's purpose, will he supplement the revelation of his word with signs and wonders. And if you get trapped into a life of Christendom in which signs and wonders have to be there once in a while or you're just not getting the juice that you need to know that Jesus is in the room, friends, watch out because the enemy loves it when when your heart goes down that line of thought because he can manipulate that every way he wants and you will find yourself so far from the truth you don't even know what the truth is anymore. If this is not enough without any magic in the room, something's not right. But for that reason... For that reason, because it's unique, because it's unusual, when he does interrupt the course of history to confirm his word with supernatural displays, it deserves special attention. And an encounter with the supernatural demands that you ask fundamental questions and you embrace whatever the answers are, despite how uncomfortable they might be. So more than that, it begs this question. Why? Why the sign? When it hasn't been the norm, why now? What is it saying? Well... That's what repentance was all about. Repenting is the result of an encounter with God that causes you to reconsider everything you hold to be true and right. When the Lord makes himself known to you, when you find out he's true, when you find out he exists, the demand you have at that moment is to cease living independently from him. 
And when he displays his power in some supernatural way, as he was willing to do for Israel, that demands that you acknowledge his authority over your life. And it's the height of foolishness to experience such things and then just proceed on in your everyday life as if nothing has happened, which is what Israel was doing. So Jesus explains where that willful ignorance is taking them. He pronounces woe, he says, on these cities and by extension on their citizens. Now, the word woe could be translated alas. Some of your translations may actually say that. But here's what it means. It's an expression of denunciation. And when it's spoken from the mouth of God, who's speaking here, obviously, Jesus, it becomes a final irrevocable judgment. That's how you need to understand this word. It is a technical term. It is not as though he was just making an exclamation. Oh, whoa. No, it was equivalent to a judge, and if I had a gavel, I would swing it. It's equivalent to a judge going, guilty. He just pronounced judgment from the mouth of God. So in literal terms, this is not a pejorative or unwholesome thing to say. It's literally true. The Lord just said, go to hell. All right, in literal terms. So he's just placed these towns under divine judgment. Both the people who failed to receive him and the physical settlements as well. Did you know that these towns were condemned to be uninhabited? And in the centuries that followed, that's exactly what has happened to all three of them. If you go to Israel today, you can visit them, but they're in ruins apart from the tourist stuff that's there. So they were condemned. So you can draw a line in your Bibles right now, if you want, if you're the kind to do this. If you draw it on the screen, it won't stay there. But you can draw it on your Bibles between verse 19 and verse 20. Because that is the place in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus changes, turns, from being an offerer of the kingdom to being the judge of that generation of Israel. Before this moment, the kingdom invitation was being shared without hesitation, without condition, without any qualifications. But from now on, Jesus uses a different kind of standard. He will only reveal himself to those who demonstrate faith. And to the rest, he is a different kind of witness. He is now declaring judgment against his own people, against this generation of Israel. Here's where the line is drawn, right when he announces woe. And the people in this town, he says, are going to suffer a judgment, an eternal judgment, that exceeds... Even those suffered by Gentile enemies of God. Now he compares these three towns to three others. That's just for the symmetry of it, okay? But they're all of groups of a kind, right? You got the three over here that are Jewish, and you got the three over here that are not, and they're in different worlds in some sense. You have Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. Now all of you have heard of Sodom, I'm sure. That's a town that's you know, together with its sister town of Gomorrah is so famous for depravity in the story of Lot. I don't need to give more than that, I'm sure. But it's because of its great sin, in fact, that the Bible tells us in First Peter that the Lord destroyed these cities as example, and he did it in such a public fashion so as to make an example of them for all eternity, that this is what happens to those who live in ungodliness and unrepentant life. Okay, But then you have these other two. They're Phoenician They were on the coast, present-day Lebanon, Sidon, Tyre. Look, we don't know as much about them, probably, but they were equally terrible in their day. They worshipped Baal. They persecuted Israel. They were wealthy trading centers. They reigned unchallenged over the Mediterranean and and over the trading uh, routes of the sea. So naturally, they were wealthy, and they had power, so they had this sense of impunity. No, They were walled cities. No one could conquer them. So what happens when you take wealth and impunity and you put the two together? You get great depravity. Just take a look at Hollywood or Washington, D.C. Right? Power and money together, never good things come out of that. 
So like Sodom, those towns were judged by God. At a point in their history, they too were destroyed, ceasing to be important centers of power. And by Jesus' day, they were largely of no significance, which is why he's talking about them now, just like Sodom. These are cities that in their day, in Jesus' day, everyone remembers them. These were the cities that got wiped out because they were bad people. God hated them. I'm glad we're not like them. That's what the Jews would have said. But amazingly, Jesus says, these three pagan cultures would have reacted differently to Jesus had he visited them in their day. He says, they would have put on sackcloth and ashes. Now, that's a particularly Eastern way of of mourning, of of custom of mourning. People would normally, when they're mourning, they exchange their regular soft clothes and they put on this burlap fabric that just hurt. They'd wear that and they'd take ashes from a fire, they'd toss it in the air over their heads and let the ashes fall on their heads and turn them ashen gray, you know, just cover their body in that ashen gray. And the whole point is it's a public expression of inconsolation. I can't help but feel bad now, and I can't stop that feeling because I'm in such mourning. That's the style of mourning that was common in the day. So what Jesus is describing is a kind of repentance that is so intense that the people have sorrow, like they're mourning a death. That's how much they would have appreciated their own sin in the face of the revelation of Christ had he come to them. That's sadness. It's a sadness born out of shame. And out of a self-loathing, because you see yourself the way God does apart from grace. It's a regret over living a wasted life apart from God. It's the horror of receiving the penalty that you know you justly deserve. That's what Jesus says these ungodly, unholy, pagan worshipers would have done if he had come to them with the same power he showed to Israel. They would have done that despite not being Jewish and therefore not having the benefit of Scripture or of knowing what even a Messiah was. They would have done that despite the depths of their depravity and the height of their power and arrogance. Nonetheless, they would have understood what they were seeing. They would have had an encounter with the divine. That would have caused them to ask those fundamental existential questions. And they would have had hearts that said, God's shown up. We need to change. Now, as you read this, you have to wonder... If Jesus is speaking purely literally or hypothetically, that is to say, would these pagan cities truly have done this? Is he saying that this is actually what would have happened? Now, if you and I had made this comparison, like if you had done that over there, they would have done this. Well, when we speak about those things, we always are speaking hypothetically. Because we have no other choice, right? We can't change history. We can't go back in time. We can't play it out a different way and see how things would have gone, right? All we can do is suppose, And when we say something like that, what we're saying to someone is, surely they would have done better than you. It's sort of a point of emphasis by comparison, but it's not literal. We don't know what would have happened. But Jesus is God, right? So he knows all things. That would mean he also knows what would happen in any detail of history had it proceeded differently, right? It went the way he wanted, but my point is he could presumably have told you what could have happened. So that means I think you have to leave the possibility open here that he means this literally. That is to say, this would have actually happened. And here's why I believe he means it that way, friends. Because when God acts to reveal himself to any group of people, he does it for a good reason and with a complete assurance that his will will be carried out through that set of circumstances. Uh, Isaiah says this in Isaiah 55.10. He says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth... 
and make it bear and sprout and furnish seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word, which goes forth from my mouth, not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Jesus says, uh, the word of God says, that when he goes about a plan, he gets exactly what he wants every time. So what we're hearing is, in the case of Tyre, or Sodom, or, or Sidon, what we're hearing is, had Jesus gone there, had that actually been God's purpose in sending Jesus, had he gone there and performed miracles there, they would have repented, because that's the reason God would have sent Jesus there. And in his sending them there for that reason, sending Jesus there for that reason, it would have accomplished what he intended. All right? So that just raises another question. If God's purpose had been to bring repentance and therefore they would have repented, which is similar to what happened with Jonah and Nineveh, remember that? Same situation there. God sends Jonah because he wants them to repent. How many of the Ninevites repented? Do you remember? All of them. 400,000 by most estimates. From the king all the way down. That doesn't happen by chance. That's not just the random luck of who happens to want to believe. That's a sovereign God saying, you will believe, and the whole city believed. God sent a man there to make that happen. And you know why he didn't want to go, right? Why he had to get sucked up by a fish? Because he knew that would happen. And Jews hate Assyrians. And he didn't even want them to see them saved, right? So that just begs a huge question. Why isn't Israel repenting, Right? Couldn't we say the same thing there? God sent him to Israel. Why aren't they repenting? Well, it only leaves us one answer. The unavoidable answer is, it was God's purpose that Israel reject their Messiah. And through that rejection, he would end up on a cross. And on a cross, he would pay for our sins. That was the desired outcome for the Father, that it would be his good pleasure to put his son up on a cross. And Jesus certainly is headed in that direction. And as Paul explains later, by Israel's rejection of Jesus, the riches of the gospel then could come to Gentiles. But Scripture also says that eventually the Jewish people will receive their Messiah in a future day so that all may receive mercy as well. So if the outcome lies in God's hands, and in God's purpose he didn't want Israel to receive his son, though if he had sent it to another culture they would have, then the last and biggest question it begs, of course, is then how can he condemn them for rejecting? The answer is that you need to understand Scripture from God's point of view, but you need to read Scripture from man's point of view. Take that home to you. Take that home with you tonight. You need to understand it from God's point of view, but you need to read it from man's point of view. From God's point of view, the outcomes are according to his will and purpose and preordained. Once you enter into eternity with God, you will share that perspective with God. And when you can see it from an eternal point of view, then everything will make sense in how it happened, not only that it happened, but why. But until that day, we all see things dimly, as Paul says, from a limited point of view. And from that vantage point, friends, all we can see is what men and women, what humanity can experience and understand in our situation here on earth from what we understand. And that happens to be the perspective from which the Word of God has been written. The Word of God has been written by people, for people, by the hand of God, but from the perspective of people. And so it has to be read from that perspective, and you have to especially do that in this kind of a situation. So as you see it from a human point of view, what do you see? You see a man, Jesus, talking to people, Jews, and he's saying to them, you should have known better. You saw, 
You heard, you had the word before me telling you what to expect. It was not rocket science. You should have known better. That's an absolutely truthful statement. And from a human point of view, there's no debating it. It's not hard to appreciate what he's saying. Now, from God's point of view, in his sovereignty and in his providence, this was the desired outcome. But here's the key. They will not be able to stand before God in their judgment moment and use his sovereignty and his providence as excuse for their sin. Those two things can live together. God and his providence and sovereignty can ordain outcomes. And at the same time, the individuals who participate in the plan of God can be culpable for their own sin. Those two things are not in contradiction. That's a little bit like a, and this is probably an inappropriate comparison in a context of Judaism, but it's a little bit like a Nazi concentration camp guard claiming that he's just following orders. It'd be like you saying to God, well, I was just doing what your sovereign will wanted, but you sinned, and that's you. God's not the author of sin. The fact that he can work that sin into the fabric of his plan so that he gets a good outcome in the end doesn't credit you. It just shows God's power. This generation, Jesus said, will be rightly judged for rejecting their Messiah in a day to come, or in the day they died. And the fact that the Lord was able to turn their rejection of Jesus to good in the end does not reduce their culpability one bit. They received more grace than any generation of humanity ever had before, and they turned away from it. So... That was their offense. And the Lord says such was their offense that they will suffer. Now notice this. This is the part that gets uncomfortable. He says they will suffer more than those in those pagan cities who because they didn't hear Jesus, obviously, they didn't repent. They went to their graves without Christ. And they will suffer as a result of unbelief as well for their sins. But this generation of Israel, they will suffer more. And don't be mistaken about what he's talking about here. There's a certain group within the church today that would love us to think nothing more than that God does not judge us in hell and that hell doesn't exist. Christ makes an explicit reference to Hades in this passage, right? There's no doubt what he's talking about. In verses 22 and again in 24, he says, the judgment for Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom will be more tolerable than it will be for the generation of Israel. There is no sidestepping what he is saying here. He is implying there are different levels of punishment in eternity, in hell and in the lake of fire. And in this case, pagans will experience, these pagans will experience less suffering in eternity than the Galileans will. That's what he's saying. Now, obviously, it's hard to sort of step into a conversation about eternal punishment because just wrapping your head around what that means is so hard to do, right? But the Bible is explicit and repeatedly says there is a reality to this. And I'm not going to take time to to visit all that here. It's just suffice to say that the Bible's not ambiguous about this. Those who die apart from trust in God's provision of Christ will suffer a punishment of eternity because the Lord is just. And it's not because their crimes are so bad they can't work them off over time. It's that their sin doesn't stop when they die. You die as you are. The nature is a sinner. The sinner's nature goes into the grave. And in hell, they're still a sinner. They're not redeemed. They've never changed. The problem isn't that they're paying for the life of sin they lived on earth. The problem is they're still separated by that sin and they forevermore will be. It's eternal because they're eternal and they're always in that state. It's hard to consider it. And if you want to use that feeling in a healthy way, go out and save the world with the call of Christ, right? But the Lord is so just. His assignment of punishment is proportional in some way that we don't quite understand here because... 
And, and it's, it's, it's hard because you can't even understand what it's like to be in an eternity in this condition, right? What fills the time? What goes through the mind? We don't even know. You can't begin to appreciate how that experience exists, much less how it could be varying by degree. But that's what Jesus says. It'll be more tolerable for one group than for another. And that makes perfect sense when you remember that Jesus also says that our eternal rewards also vary according to our service in Christ. So just as all believers enter heaven by faith alone, yet our rewards in heaven will vary by degree of service. Likewise, all unbelievers enter hell for lack of faith, and yet their degree of punishment, it appears, will vary in some sense. So the very worst among humanity, I guess, will experience something less tolerable than others. And among the very worst of this age, Jesus says, we will find those of Bethsaida, Chorazim, and Capernaum. They stared Jesus in the face, they heard his words, they saw his miracles, and they said no to his offer. Look, we have our own ways of racking and stacking sin. If I could turn this to you for just a minute, because I know as a believer, this isn't the concern on our hearts, nor should it be. It's not us that he's talking about here. But for us, the issue turns a little differently. For us, there are certain sins in our life that seem worse than others. And I think there are those among us, and maybe we all share this to some degree, we kind of hope that God is stricter to some people than he is to others. You hear about people who do terrible things on the news, and you think, I hope that person has a worse hell because they deserve it. And I understand that. But be careful what you ask for, Christian. And here's why I say that. Because before you encourage God to judge sinners in that sense, pay attention to what he values. Do you suppose, for example, that homosexuality is the worst sin? Or, or maybe idolatry? Is that the worst sin? Or, or greed or some other kind of depravity? Well, do you know what? You could find all of those things in Sodom. They were idolaters. They were greedy, according to Ezekiel. And they were also homosexual. They pursued homosexuality. But look what the Lord just said. He says he's judging the people of Israel worse than he's judging them. What was uh, their offense, by the way? What was the offense of those of the Galilee? Turning away from the revelation of God. Remaining hard-hearted to God's mercy. Close-minded to the truth. So that, I would argue, is God's worst sin. Worse than homosexuality. Worse than the depravity of whatever you can imagine happened in those other towns. And I know he was speaking of the the sin of unbelief ultimately here, right? Because as believers, this is not the kind of judgment we're going to know. But if your understanding of Jesus' teaching here stops at the door of, oh, that's what happens to unbelievers, then friends, you're missing the main point. You're missing the main point of what we need to understand here. The principle is this. To whom much is given, much is required. That's the principle at play here. In his perfection, the Lord, in his justice, will take into account everything when he levies his judgment, including how much grace somebody received. And in the case of Israel, they had such immense grace, they had not only what Jesus gave them, but before that, they had the law, the covenants, the prophets, the temple service. They had so much going for them. And then Christ shows up and does even more for them. They turn it down. To whom much is given, much was required, that will transfer into their judgment as well. So Christians, I think the question you have to ask yourself is, I'm not in jeopardy, I don't have this concern over my salvation, I have come to faith, that's great. But there's still this question, what have you been given? I think that's really the question. What have you been given? First and foremost, here's what I know you've been given. You have the grace of Christ. Right? You have received the revelation of Christ. You are free from judgment. No matter what you have done, no matter what you will do, no matter how far you stray from Christ, you will never be condemned. Period. 
and you have received the righteousness of Christ by faith. That means though your sins be as scarlet, as they'll become as white as wool, Isaiah says. So you have that. What else do you have? Oh, you got the whole counsel of God's word. You know, a good third of this wasn't even written by the time the Galileans saw Christ. You've got it all. You've got the full counsel of God's word. Angels, Peter says, long to look on these things. And we have them. The saints of old received only portions of these things, the writer of Hebrews says. You've got it all. Does the book sit in, in the house dusty, or is it in use regularly? Moreover, you have received the indwelling of God's own spirit. You have the mind of Christ at all times, the Bible says. You can know his will in ways that no other age was ever able to do in the way that we can. And if that weren't enough, you have spiritual powers, spiritual gifts that are available for your use to glorify God. Um, I mean, my goodness, I dare say we have received far more than the first generation of Israel received. Now, in testimony to God's goodness, we have come to faith in it which is more than they ever did, of course. But now I ask you, what do you think his expectations are for his church when he has given so much? What is the expectation? Knowing how he judged the disobedience of Israel, can we afford to be complacent or cavalier with what we've been given? How much do you think he requires? I mean, what does that look like? We don't have time to explore it anymore tonight. And you're happy to hear that. I can sum it up, though. Seeking his will for your life in every hour of every day is probably about where it starts. Look, this church is, is important to me, not just because I come up here and preach or I work for it or something. No, it's, it's important to me because if, this, if what I do matters, if it means something to God, then it's not meant to be just kept to myself or 25 people who want to come to a midweek Bible study. It's meant to be useful to anyone in the city who has ears to hear. And not because it's coming out of my mouth, but because it's God's word and I'm, a, I'm just the horse, the, the donkey, you know, from Numbers 22. What I am saying, though, is I can't do it by myself, obviously. I'm not here to do it by myself. You're here with me right now, and I'm happy to, to see you. But there's, there's room for more. There's more people out there than even we could meet right now. And that's a sign that I think we still have work to do as a church, as a body in our hearts, to think about the fact that this is not a little exercise in self-edification. This is a training ground for us to go out and do something with what we've been given. And I think that's a mindset that starts first with a thought that says, I should be talking to people about what we do here. I should be asking people if they're interested. I should be encouraging them to listen online or whatever ways we have to invite them. And in that way, we start to impress upon them that, hey, Steve's pretty serious about this. This is something important to him. And I'll add one other thought and I'll be done. If this is a church that that works into a week for you with another church, I'm not opposed to that. I, I teach in other churches. That's fine. But I do want to ask you this. Where is your time, talent, and treasure going? Which church is the one you want to see grow? Which church is the one that you think God has put here to do something and you're a part of that? And I don't know that the answer is this one. That may be another one. But I think there is a question that we should all be willing to answer in that regard. And if the answer is, this is the place God has put you because what he's doing here is important to you and to what you want to see done for others, then that calls into question where you're oriented in all areas of your life. Because that's what I think God does with his people. He puts them somewhere so they can invest there and use that for some good in his purpose. And I'm saying that not because there's any issue and there's concern or or, or any uh, deadlines or whatever. I'm saying that because I'm excited to take this to the people of San Antonio and I need help to do it. And you guys are that help. We're all here to do this together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the patience in this room the hearts that want to know you and hear your word and for the blessed opportunity that you've given us to do it father i pray as we exit tonight and move out into our 
weekend and our day to come, weeks to come, that you will give us opportunity to talk to those around us in the day, uh, in our everyday life, about who Christ is and how we come to know him, about this church and how we come to follow in his word, and about how much he has changed our life through the studies that we've already engaged in. I do pray, Father, you'd give us both the wisdom and the courage to do those things. And Lord, lastly and most importantly, if there's anybody in this room, Father, who in hearing these things tonight has come to recognize that in their own heart they have yet to have repented or yet to have confessed faith in you, that this would be a moment, Father, that they would not pass by without taking opportunity to do those things, that they would not wait for another day or assume it will come, that they will not question whether they're thinking correctly or whether the truth is truly what it is, Father. They will simply embrace what they've heard, knowing in their heart that you've brought them here to hear it. And if they've embraced it, Father, that person or group of people, whoever it is in this room, if they are here, Father, I pray that they would have the courage to tell someone, tell me or someone in this room when they're done tonight, that they have had that moment and they are ready to follow Christ in faith. And we would be there to receive them and explain more to them about what that walk with Christ would look like. Thank you for the privilege if it comes tonight, Father. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.